You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Kadarius Colbert. Kadarius is a senior facilities planner for the Santa Ana Unified School District. A Texas native, Kadarius holds four degrees, a BS in psychology and a BA in public affairs from Texas Southern University, a master's in city and regional planning from Cornell University, and a master's in sociology and social anthropology from Central Europe. European University. He grew up as the youngest of three, but took on the role as the rock of his family, and he left for college with that in mind. He was focused on a career in mental health, but after being on track to graduate early, he decided to pursue his interest in public affairs and ended up as a double major. In part one of our conversation, we walked through Kadarius's academic journey and the beginning of his career as a planner for the city of Longview, Texas. It was a stable job, but Kadarius felt like he had failed by having to return home to find work. After two years in that role, he decided to make a change, and he left not only his job, but the state of Texas altogether. So please enjoy the first part of his story and come back next week for part two. Kadarius, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for being here. Happy to have you. You seem like you're a little nervous. We kept we told you before you press record, it's gonna be fine. Listen, I know the cal I know the caliber of person you are. I know the crop that you come from. Uh namely these alphas. We've had many of them on the show. It's like a running joke now that like they're their own network within the network of guests. Um <laughs> so I have no doubt in my mind that you're gonna knock this out of the park. Awesome. I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation and how it evolves. All right. So let's jump into it. Who is Kadarius Colbert? So I thought deeply about this. Uh, and the first person I am, I guess, is a son, uh, a brother. Uh, according to my my niece, the greatest uncle in the world, um, an advocate, a scholar, a servant to my community, and a student of life and someone who is constantly striving to be my whole self in the image of God. I like that. So I want to talk about family structure first, because you mentioned being a son and a brother. And I often think where siblings fall in the lineup kind of inform some of their behaviors and who they are in life. So tell me a little bit about your family and your upbringing. So I'm the youngest of three. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have an older brother and an older sister, both with uh, my brother has three children, two boys and one girl. And my sister has one daughter. And I am the baby of of that group, but uh, I act as the oldest and most responsible, of course. Um, my my mom is an only child, and so we have a, a pretty small, intimate family. I grew up with my aunts, my great aunts and uncles, um, kind of behaving as uh, my the siblings of my mother, and also their children being who were my cousins. Uh, they kind of served as aunts and uncles. So I call a lot of my my cousins, big cousins, um, cousin aunt or auntie cousin. Or, <laughs> and so um, so I have a really small family. I'm originally from East Texas. Uh, so we, my grandmother is who, my mom's mom, who is deceased now, is, uh, you know, the the youngest of eight. And so I have a, a big cousin network. Uh <laughs> 
but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's just us. But I'm the only person that lives outside of Texas, and most of my family still is there. And uh, so I guess that kind of answers your question. But uh, yeah, you know what's interesting about the cousin network and black families primarily. I'm just gonna speak for us because that's what I know. You can have cousins who are like three months old. I'm like 73. Like it, the, the age range is always crazy when you start thinking about those different levels of like great aunties and, you know, all of that stuff. But I'm surprised to hear that your mom is an only child because, you know, oftentimes with our parents' generation, they still were on that five kids, six kids, eight kids dynamic. And then you get down to our generation, it's often the two or three. But she yeah. was, it was just her. It was just her. And, you know, I, I've thought about this and my grandmother, who was my best friend, honestly, we had a very um, strong, I know everybody says like they love their grandmother, but my grandmother literally um, was my best friend up until 2010 when she passed. And she um, was one of the, the breadwinners of the family, of her, her siblings. And she was not college educated, but had what was like an equivalence. She was a social worker for 25 years. She worked for the state of Texas um, and mental health. And so I have a passion for mental health, mental retardation, as it was called MHMR at that time, um, but community service and that kind of, she actually planted that um, in me, but she was someone who was, uh, this is her story, but it's a part of mine as well, who was in a an abusive relationship mm-hmm. at one point. Um, and she did, there was a narrative, but I'm not sure the truth of it, that there was a son um, named Anthony, who, uh, was a stillborn. Mm. And so, uh, but my grandmother was raised by her sisters because my great grandmother, uh, died at an early age. So I believe my grandmother was maybe 15 when her mother died. And so, um, her sisters raised her. And so, um, it's really interesting to see, uh, how that, narrative has has played out and I actually made a mistake my aunt Faye is the baby my grandmother is the knee baby mm-hmm. uh, my aunt Faye is a, a powerful force so I don't see her as the baby girl uh, but yeah so I I don't know like why my grandmother she, my grandmother did leave uh, our hometown uh, at one point with her husband at the time and so I think that played a, a role and uh, she was a very strong woman with, with goals and uh, so she just had my, my mom and I think that was it. And uh, my mom and my grandmother had a, had a really uh, interesting uh, situation and, and, and things. But uh, yeah, I, I, I always wondered, you know, why I didn't have any other uncles or, or anything. I thought that would be so cool. And I kind of, you know, envy people who have like really large families because it's just us. So um, I don't have any children right now, but um, so I really value the network of children that my 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 siblings keep 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 having. Uh, <laughs> so we're at four right now. So, mm-hmm. um, but yes, yeah, so I, I but I, I hope that we are able to to build that. So, but I'm pretty close to my cousins. We we have a pretty tight family for us to be from my mom to be the only child, and so we lean on that network. Yeah, like, you know, and and I'm gonna digress a little bit, but I think it's an important part of our culture and our stories because I, I have a similar story in that super close to my grandmother, you know, just such an integral part of who I became. Um, And, you know, we lost her in in 2009. And all these years later, I still have this knee-jerk reaction sometimes of like, 
oh, I got to call Nana, right? Just wanted to tell her about something or, uh, you know, have a conversation or seek advice. But similarly, there are parts of her story where I have an idea, but I really don't know all the details. And, you know, we talk a lot about, as Black people, about their parts of our heritage that we just don't know, right? Because we were brought here, that was stripped away from us. We often can't track back multiple generations, you know, five, six generations or what have you. But I think there's something to be said too for our ancestors and elders that we had in our lives, but we still don't know the whole story. Because I think from a cultural perspective, sometimes things are just so painful or traumatic that you tuck them away and you have to be strong to persevere and and support your family and just make it happen. Um, And it pains me, I think, and I don't know if you feel this way, that there are some things about the narrative that are fuzzy. Somebody I was so close to and poured so much into me and there are parts of her story that I'm curious about that I'll never get the details on at this point. And I think um, similarly, uh, I, like yesterday, I was thinking I was in Target and I was just having a moment in which I was like, oh man, I need to call my grandmother. And I hadn't had that that moment in a year or so, maybe. Uh, her death was very difficult to me and I processed it and I, I may speak about that, but I um, was just so much that I, I shared with her, but it was not until her death that I realized there was so much that I wanted to know. And I think so much of who I am in my career path has been because of in pursuit of that narrative, in pursuit of answers uh, that I have, uh, questions that I have. Even my research topic, uh, my thesis is dedicated to her because of some of the conversations we had throughout my childhood, uh, my passion for public service, um, and thinking of just conversations we would have while, on Saturday evenings while sitting in the living room, um, watching city council. I think my passion for government, uh, my passion for service, as I said, but my, also my passion for of love and giving back uh, to people and, and understanding that the world is bigger than myself, but I have a role um, in it and that I play, I can play a big part or a small part, but it also starts at home and, and being so much of who I am to my family um, and recognizing that uh, sometimes I think as the educated person in our family, I think Black people see this all the time, you know, you end up being a rock, unfortunately. And regardless of if you want to take that role on or not, you you have to realize, and I think uh, it was really just yesterday that I was like, you know, my grandmother called me baby boy. She was like, you know, baby boy, you know, it's, it's you. You got to you gotta do it. And uh, I just realized, like, it kind of like settled on me. It was kind of like, I, you got to knuckle down and be, be the man that, you know, everything that she taught you was, it wasn't just that she was teaching you these things just because she thought it was cool, but she was literally, you know, old people be knowing, they, you know, they, they know, and they, they're very intentional. And so I, I think the lessons that she, she taught me, the way in which she, um, I mean, I had to do so much as a kid uh, that this is why I say I'm the responsible one of my siblings. I, I knew too much um, that people called me old man. And uh, so <laughs> I, 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 she was always sick my entire life. So I knew how to drive at the age of 14. I took her to get medication. I paid her bills uh, up until the point of her death. When she died, I was literally the person on every document, legal document. Um, my mother was not even on the, the, the document. So um, she taught me so much. And uh, I realized just yesterday, like, I got to get this together. You know, I got to be the person in my family to make sure that my family remains uh, strong. And even though sometimes I'm like, man, I just want to live my life. You know, I'm sick of being, <laughs> I'm sick of being the adult around here uh, and, and having to, to make 
um, sacrifices uh, where I just want to be a kid um, in so many respects, even though I'm a grown man now. But uh, sometimes I just yearn for that independence and lack of responsibility. Um, however, that's not the, the, the hand uh, that I've been given and dealt. Uh, and I have to accept that. And I think uh, it's a, a beautiful, you know, twisted narrative at, at times uh, because I, I revel in it at times, uh, but because I, I love to give and to, to serve my family, but also uh, it is, it's tiring, it's exhausting. Um, and at times it can feel like a burden that, you know, I should not have to bear, but, you know. And, you know, um, I've... This, boy, you ain't nobody. <laughs> And it's always interesting, right, when people start having these conversations on the show and it always resonates with our audience. This is the kind of people who listen. It resonates with me. But I'm always thinking as the conversation is happening, oh, boy, when the cousins and the siblings and the parents hear this, like, what's it going to be? But it is a reality, right? It's a reality that when you have reached a certain level, you have a certain drive and you've been essentially anointed as that person by an elder. It's just the truth. Right. And and people may not want to acknowledge that outright because of how it makes them feel. But the actions that they're taking absolutely reinforce that you're playing that role right in your family. And I think one of the things that I'm passionate about is making sure that people who pay that play that role in their family are having the outlets to talk about it um, mm-hmm. and to process emotions and also be OK if they have negative emotions around that. Right. Because I think sometimes you can feel like you were saying, you can feel like I just want to worry about me and then snapping out of it quickly. Like, okay, but that's not the card. Those are not the cards that I was dealt. Uh, It's just what I have to do. I'm proud to do it, et cetera. And I think there's something to be said for taking a moment and saying, you know what? I do have some negative emotions around this and I need to sit in that and process that. And the reason why I think that's a good thing is because when you don't, oftentimes when you feel like you're just pushing it to the side and moving on, what you're really doing is pushing it down. And when you're pushing it down in that way and not really acknowledging, okay, this is having a negative impact on me and how do I better manage my self-care around it, over time, it can grow. And it can grow to the point where then you have some situation where somebody has pressed you for your help or whatever, wanting you to play that play that role. And then you snap and they're looking at you like, bro, this is who you are in this family. This is no different than what you've done in the past. Why are you snapping? And then you might be asking yourself, why am I reacting in this way? And really, it's not about the isolated incident. It's a compounded experience of always playing that role and having played it for a while. Um, I'm on my soapbox a little bit right now. But I I think it's important um, to discuss it and bring that to the surface. And I think also it's it's self-imposed the pressure, but culturally, we impose that as well. Like you're the one who's made it. This is your lot in life. Take it, accept it and run with it. And that's not fair either. It's not. And I think as a man, uh, there's a gender aspect to this because you got to be strong. And uh, I'm a, I, I, I write a lot and uh, just just to journal, because when I don't have anybody to talk to, I got to talk to myself and uh, I, I journal, but they're really prayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one, um, I, I recall just recently, probably in the past two years, I was having a difficult time professionally and didn't understand why uh, my life had kind of landed me in Orange County, California, in this very white and place where I'm the only person um, and thinking I'm like away from my family. And, you know, it's not where I plan to be at all. It's not a black, bad place to be. It's just not what I plotted out on my little, my, my life plan. So I, I was 
just having this difficulty and, and thinking about uh, leaving my, my my job. And so I, w- I was talking to my mom and uh, I was just letting her know, I was like, Ma, you know, I'm just in a rut. And uh, she said, she told me, like, she said, you are the rock. And I had never, we had, me and my mom, we have conversations, but I look at my mom in a very different way than I looked at my grandmother um, because she was a young mother of three children. And so I, I remember watching my mom turn 30, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't think that uh, that resonated with me until I turned 30. And I was just like, I couldn't be raising three kids. Right I like, how could she do this? Like, I can barely take care of myself. But I, had, I remember vivid memories. And uh, like, I feel like in hindsight, for my mom to only have a high school education and then to have a son with not only one or two, but four degrees, but and my brother as well, who graduated uh, college, and my sister, who was just doing her own thing. She's a rebel without a cause. But, you know, I, I, I look back and I reflect and I'm like, you, you really did that. But she was telling me, she was like, you are the rock and you have to do certain things. And it's unfair, but it just is what it is, boy. You just, you just got to do it. And uh, it was a really rough conversation because that's not what I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not what I, I felt like my mom should be saying to me. Um, at that time, I didn't. I, I wanted her maybe to coddle me a little bit, to to nurture me, to hold me. And it wasn't that she was saying be strong because you're a man. It was just that this is it, and this is always has been it for you. And people look towards you, and more so realize who you are. Um, and I think that is something that um, I'm. I, I have to become more comfortable with the purpose that God has placed on my life. Um, and sometimes there's a discomfort in that. And I think, you know, I grew up in the South, so of course I'm big on church, but like, I mean, the story is, is Jonah. He ran from what God wanted him to do. And I think that you can run um, from your purpose for only for so long. And, and I think God will be like, I'm fine. I'm sick of playing with you. You got to come back around to what it is that I've assigned, you know? And I think that God has let me play in my playground right now. But at, this, at the time, and I think it kind of really settled on me. And I don't even know why yesterday, but I was, I was just thinking and it just kind of settled upon me. Like, I right, put your big boy pants on, take care of your family, do what you're, do what you're supposed to do. And I reflected on that conversation with my mom really heavily. And I was just like, wow, like, um, I, you're going to be the rock, be a strong one, you know, mm-hmm. be one that you can lean on and be one that, you know, people turn, be, be the foundation that your family needs you to be. So, um, I'm I'm kind of stepping into their role. And uh, I, I think the fear is, is that, you know, being raised in a household without a man, uh, without my father, uh, but having a, a myriad of examples of great men in my life, um, I, I'm, I'm blazing a trail that says, I don't know what's next. I don't even know what this looks like. And I'm making so many mistakes, I feel like. And I feel like I'm failing every day. And how dare me have to drag or to pull or to be dependent on by so many other people. And I don't even know the path forward. I don't even know what this looks like. I'm learning from television and movies about, you know, um, manhood, um, you know, and, and, and just thinking about family structures and um, what it all looks like. Like, I don't, I don't have an example of this. And it's like, I'm just finding my way in the darkness. Um, And, and of course, like, I grew up around like, a lot of strong black women. So I see that. So I'm a bit sensitive, 
you know, I, but at the same time, it's like, uh, I, I appreciate that, uh, that emotional vulnerability that I got from them. Um, because it, it lets me know that it's okay to, to cry. It's okay to break down. Um, but stand up, keep going and, 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 and push yourself. But, uh, it's scary still, it's still scary. Um, and in ways that I still try to, I'm processing, uh, <laughs> in a way, this conversation feels super therapeutic. So I'm gonna stop talking right now. <laughs> this is what it's supposed to be, man. We, we really, we pull the vulnerability out of people. So yeah. you know, come on, they're all buttoned up with their corporate voice. <laughs> and then we just kind of pull out the virtual couch and say, have a seat, lie down and get it out. Um, because, and I, and I think that's important too. And why I'm so committed to a show with that format is because you can be strong and vulnerable vulnerable in the same conversation, right? And that duality, I think we need to learn to live with as people who are strivers. Um, and so much about being out in the world as a Black educated person is, I won't even say presenting uh, an image of strength because that's who we are. Like the things that you've accomplished, you don't do that, right? You don't blaze a new trail without a blueprint, without being strong. But having a, a hesitance around exposing that vulnerability because it's like, well, if I'm vulnerable, will I be seen as weak? Mm -hmm. And I don't have the space to be seen as weak. I can't mm -hmm. allow any kind of cracks to show. Um, so on this show, it's almost like our little virtual self-help group, our <laughs> core sort of listener and our target audience to be able to say like, I'm not the only one who's feeling this because he said X, Y, and Z. And what you said about um, feeling like you're failing every day. I just had this conversation maybe like three weeks ago in therapy, like I'm very open about therapy on this show and we, we encourage it and we promote it. Um, but talking about this idea of like, after having accomplished so much, still having to like beat back those feelings of like, am I missing the mark? Am I failing? How do people view me? Am I one mistake away or one misstep away from it all come crumbling down, you know, from all of it just folding like a house of cards? And it's very ironic that you said, you know, the four degrees, the things, people read your resume and, and think this man is killing it, but you're waking up every day questioning, am I really though? Yeah. Am I really? And I don't know that we've got the monopoly on that as Black people, but I see that resonating more with us, right, than the majority. Um, and a lot of them, they feel like they're killing it and they're not. So, um, but where, where do you think that comes from? Is it because we just don't have the model uh, is it because maybe we don't offer, we're not culturally, we don't often offer positive reinforcement? What do you think it is? I don't know. I, I, I think that Black people have just had to be excellent for so long that we don't have the capacity or the space to fail mm -hmm. because failing is not failing up for, for us sometimes because we're often the only people um, in our space, in our industries, and we represent so much that the opportunity or space for us to fail means that we 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 drop we pull a generation potentially is set back. And so um, I show up to my job where I am the only one, and I'm in this space as an urban planner. I am often the only person, and I, I feel like I don't have anybody to turn to. And I think a piece of it is that as well, that our social groups, um, thank God I have uh, Alpha, you know, in my fraternity to turn to. Thank God I have um, 
a good friend group of, of people, of Black folks that are successful and have similar backgrounds that I can turn to and talk to. But sometimes I feel like we're so scattered out across uh, industries and things that we don't have anybody to turn to in our media circle and be like, they understand uh, exactly what I'm going through. I can talk to them in a way that they, they get it. Um, and I think that can be isolating and that can be <laughs> just, um, it, it can feel like you're, you're on this, you're by yourself. And, and, and when you, when you learn, like to your point, what you just said, like you learn that, oh my God, there are multiple people that feel like this. And one thing that I learned this year was I had been underestimating my mom is because I thought, you know, she doesn't get it, but she would say some things like, and I guess, you know, as an adult, you start having different conversations with your parents. But she started saying, uh, she would say some of the simplest things. And I'd be like, oh, my God, like, that was so powerful. You know, like, you don't, she doesn't have to get everything that I do. And she may not have the capacity to get everything that I do. But it's just the fact that she's listening. She hear, I felt heard. I felt seen. I felt validated. Um, I felt supported. And these are the things that I was looking for, but I was also looking for it in someone I felt like that understood. Um, and oftentimes we can find the things that we don't know that we need most uh, right in front of us because we're looking for it in a place that we we think we it's supposed to be, it's, well, it's supposed to be over there, it's supposed to be in this person. And uh, I felt with, with Black people, and I hope I'm answering your question, uh, with Black people, it's just that we can be just by ourselves in our head and we just got to be perfect. That's the Obama effect. It's the potentially Kamala Harris effect. It's the potentially Gilbert uh, Patrick. Any black folks that's at the forefront, uh, forefront of a, a corporation or government space, or just any any black person in our day to day lives, like we just got to be perfect walking. We just we just can't even be <laughs> right so walking out into the world to Target, you know? Because I think about when I go to Target here in Orange County. I'm the only black person that these white folks or Hispanic folks or Asian people might see. So, you know, can I go in there with my do-rag or a hat or slides? Or do I got to put on the best face? Or should I be authentic and raw and let them know that black people are this way as well? When we're normal, we have bad days as well. What can I and do I have the space to give them? And uh, I think that is like conflicting because everybody, I, I don't think that everyone has those thoughts going through their head every day. But I feel like that's an experience that Black people, is unique to Black people, um, at least from my perspective and my experience. And so, yeah, so it's a lot. Yeah, it, it is a lot. Yeah. I, I always say that like Black people have their profession and then they have this other job, right? So they're like doing the job that they're paid to do. And there's this other job where they're filtering every decision, how they appear, how they speak, how did that interaction go? How did I present, you know, to this group of people or this audience in a work setting or personally and professionally? It is exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's completely exhausting. And, you know, I've been in these listening sessions and focus groups and I've been in corporate a long time, right? Like first, at this point, it's 20 years. I had my first corporate mm -hmm. internship literally at 18. Um, and so all these years of having these conversations around DNI, and there's been growth and, and understanding but I think there's still not a sensitivity to that's not something that being something that we just can't turn off. Right. right. And there's a reason why we all do it, because let's be real, like implicit bias, unconscious bias, all that stuff still exists. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a lot of work that we need to do to overcome that. And 
oftentimes I think my frustration is these kinds of conversations are not happening with the people who need to hear them, right? So we're having the conversations amongst ourselves. Companies are setting up focus groups to figure out how comfortable their black and brown folks are, but they're not educating the others, right? So if that's the case, like how are we really advancing? Because the, the, the others have to be in the conversation, they have to be educated and hopefully come to the point of being an ally. And so that's the part that leaves me a bit disheartened um, some days. But I, I recognize, I think what a lot of what you brought up is something that is a common thread amongst high achievers, people who are really trying to knock it out of the park and, and do something that hasn't been done in their family, in their circle, in their community. And we are scattered. We're a unit in the sense that we are friends, we have our circle. But often when you walk into that room or that job or whatever it is, you are one of a few. And mm-hmm. that that's not easy. Um, but going back to your academic and professional journey, oftentimes when people say, you know, I knew early on that I was going to have to be play this role in my family, they often choose a career or an academic path with that in mind. Did that inform what you went to college for, what you wanted to do for a career? Yes and no. I I went to school at Texas Southern University and I, I got to really uh, probably take it a couple of steps back because um, when I was younger, um, I was not the most academically focused young man. Uh, in fact, some would say that I was bad. (laughs) And I was suspended from school probably 12, 13 times. I was always fighting um, in the streets and in school. And uh, it didn't matter who you were. uh, But I always fought for, I felt like in in hindsight, the right reason. And it was never really for myself. It was always in defense of others. And in hindsight, I asked, well, if the principal only would have asked why what was why did the fight start as opposed to here you are fighting again then she would probably have she or he would have learned that um oh he always defending folks stay out of other folks business you know <laughs> and uh so i didn't really i was a track star i ran track uh, my entire life up until um i got into it with my track coach in the 11th grade which was this pivot moment of my life because the only path out of my neighborhood would have been through athletics. And the only opportunity that I had would have been to run track because I'm not a stout, huge guy. Uh, and so football wasn't it. Uh, but track, I knew that I could get a scholarship or there was going to be some path out of avenue through uh, track to get me to college. When I got into it with this track coach and I quit the track team, it was the 11th grade year of my life. And I was like, oh, what are you going to do now? You know, my grandmother is a person who values education. And she would have been proud if I was a handing out stickers at Walmart. But what she wanted me to do was to go to college and to this black college that she had been contributing to. She didn't know. She just knew it was a good school. And she had been paying uh, her, her tithes at her, her local church. Um, and they contributed to this church, uh, this this college that was affiliated. It was like their sister college or something that was affiliated. And so she valued it. And I was just like, I'm not going there ever. Um, so I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. Uh, but um, at this 11th grade like pivot point, I, I decide I quit track. And I'm like, I asked, I had three friends. And they were always my smart friends. And I asked them, I said, how are you all going to make it to college? What are you all doing? And they said, well, 
You know, they were in AP class. They were in gifted and talented programs. And uh, their trajectory due to the education of their parents had been kind of set forth. Their parents knew how to make the right decisions by putting them in the right elementary schools or middle schools or academic programs or summer programs. So they were kind of set. And here I am in the 11th grade trying to determine how am I get, I'm going to get to college and trying to make up almost 12 years or 10 years of not having uh, a pathways before me um, in order to succeed acad- academically because everything, I was an average student because everything had been predicated upon me performing athletically to get to college. And so now that this dream is out of the window, it's tossed and because I'm not going back to running track. I'm not, not, this is it. I asked these three friends, how do you do it? They, they say, well, right now you need to improve your GPA. In the 11th grade, I said, what is a GPA? The 11th no, grade. No, you didn't. I said, what is a GPA? You did not no, say that. I had no clue that there was this numerical scale trailing me and tracking my performance in order for me to go to college, uh, all of this. And so that metric, I was like, okay, I just thought we got grades. I didn't know that it was dialed down to this number. So they walk me to the office and they, I get my class ranking and uh, my GPA from the registrar. And I realized that, okay, I'm not the dumbest one at this school, <laughs> but I'm also not the smartest. And that's okay. Uh, what's the path that I can do to improve? So in my senior year of high school, I enrolled in all advanced placement courses and blew it out the park. I overperformed and and excelled so well that I thought that maybe if someone back in elementary school would have said, he's not focused in school, he's always in other people's business defending people, maybe if we put him in a different program that it would have challenged me more academically, I, I could have been on a different career path. I could have been on a different academic path, uh, but I was trapped because I was a bad kid into all these other things. And so I make this career, this this academic change at in, in the 11th grade, the 12th grade year ends up being great. I end up getting accepted into college, uh, which was, um, I, I still kind of pursued colleges that, and I was being pursued by colleges for cross country and track. Um, and I, my parents, my mom would not let me go um, out of state. And uh, my grandmother was just wanting me to stay close. My brother who had attended a community college was like, he was at Texas Southern University in Houston at the time. And so he says, um, I don't think you're ready for Houston. It's too big of a city, but um, you should come visit. And I, my brother is an art, artist by uh, training. And so he says, you know, as he, he comes and he, my brother and I, we weren't close, we weren't the closest of brothers um, as, as kids because he went to a different elementary school than I did. And uh, he was old enough to where like every time I got to the school, he was leaving the school. Then we had high school together, but he was a senior and I was a freshman and that wasn't going to work. Um, so in college, he, well, he, he takes me to Texas Southern University on this tour and he gives me like this very black, uh, big brother, like, you know, look at this. This is, you know, he gives, he tells me about the history of HBCUs and, um, and it was, it was, I, I fell in love and I was like, I'm going. And he was like, okay. And so my mom felt comfortable because my brother was there. And so uh, we, we got so close. Um, and that was literally um, how I got to Texas Southern University and, 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 and college. And then I got a scholarship to be on the debate team, um, which was because, thank God, TSU didn't have a cross-country team. And the kids they had on the track team were just 
uh, phenomenal, so I wasn't going to make that. But um, I took academics. Uh, it was the kickoff. It was just like I didn't do it those 12 years. So now is the time that I have to make up for all the things that I didn't do because I didn't know my intellectual capacity or that I can read and think because everything had been telling me that the only thing that you're good enough, uh, you're, you're good at is the use of your body um, in order to perform, in order to get somewhere, that you don't have the capacity to think um, and, and, and excel using your mind. Um, and once I realized that, uh, it was, the game was over. And so um, that's, how, that's how I got to college. <laughs> but you know what's interesting about this is like when I think back to my junior year, um, of college and the conversations I was having with my guidance counselor. Now, granted, I was in these honors classes. Mm -hmm. I was on that path. But even mm -hmm. if I talked to my friends who were doing some other things, right, weren't really focused on college or whatever, there was still a conversation had with the guidance counselor. Like, okay, mm -hmm. here's where you stand academically. Do you want to go to trade school? Do you want to spend your senior year at vo vocational? Like, do you want to do something else? Because you're not really cutting it on the academic front. Were you having those conversations with administrators or were you literally just in the dark? Uh, I was not having any of those conversations with any administrator. I think our guidance counselors, counselors were non-existent uh, for black folks at the mm. school. And um, if you weren't a, an, an outstanding uh, academic kid, because those three, those three black folks that I talked about, they were smart um, and they knew and people were investing in them both people were kind of like plotting it. They really didn't have to go to a guidance counselor because people were guiding them. <laughs> for me, it was like, oh, well, you can go talk to Miss X. Um, she could probably help you. But when I went to talk to the guidance counselor about getting into AP classes, first off, it was like, no, why would you do this your senior year? Um, two, you haven't done this and these programs are kind of tracked. Um, and you can't just hop into these programs. I was like, why not? Um, but thank God I would, I knew how to talk. I knew how to speak and advocate for myself, if nothing else. And uh, I was able to push my way into this and say, you can't tell me I can't enroll in a course. Why? Um, and then I was in there and I was the only black kid. And so I just used it because I knew I had to hustle. I worked two jobs at that time. Since I had quit track, I uh, didn't know that because of my parents' income status that I qualified for certain uh, grants or didn't have to pay maybe some application fees or anything. So in my mind, I got to pay for all this. So I started working at a snow cone place on uh, Monday through Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. I worked at Chick-fil-A for two years after that. And so every day um, after, after this, I'm going home at 11, 12 o'clock at night, going and meeting up with these friends, staying up to three o'clock in the morning, getting up and I'm <laughs> get, catching the bus at six. Uh, then I finally saved enough, got a car, um, but just literally grinding that senior year was like the, in hindsight, like, I'm like, how did you work two jobs and do all of this AP, um, all these classwork and literally, I literally changed my entire life. Um, and, and so I, I, I'm super grateful for that because it just, it let me know that anything is possible, but I, I kind of had to do it by myself. There was nobody, there was nobody then, but those three friends who I value to this day who said, I will help you. I'm, two of them said, I'm not enrolling in any of those AP courses with you because I'm done with that. And one of them said, I will be there with you every step of the way. And he was. And um, it was too late for me to, to perform at, at a, at a way, in, a, in a way and manner that I needed to perform in order to, to get 
you know, in a top 10 percent of my class, because in Texas, if you get in the top 10, you get into any state school automatically. Um, but I got into TSU and was good enough uh, for my grandmother because she was excited on February the 14th when I got that acceptance letter. Uh, she was so proud. She was so proud. And I think that to me was just like, OK, you've done enough to make your grandmother proud. You're going to college. Now you just got to blow it out the park when you get there. And so I think I kind of not answered your question in a way, but. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. But, you know, uh, uh, we were talking about going to bed at three and waking up at six. When I think back to like how little sleep I needed at 17 or 18 <laughs> to function, man, I miss those days. I just, I digress. But yeah, like back then, you know, you could study half the night, pop up, school started extra early. I think we had, to, I think our first bell was at like 730 or something. I don't yeah. remember. Um, and I did the news in high school, so I had to be there even earlier. But if I consistently got three to four hours of sleep now, we'd be in trouble. Uh, <laughs> it's a ball game. So, but you, so you invested the time, ended up going to Texas Southern. What was your vision for your career at that point? Because that was your question. Mm -hmm. um, it was to be a psychologist. Really? I, yes. I knew that I would be, uh, I wanted to go to, psych to be a psychiatrist. So I knew that there was a medical school requirement. Um, and then I get at, to TSU, and here I am again in other folks' business. Uh, <laughs> I was living in the dormitory. I was on a debate team, and the conditions of the residence hall was unacceptable. And so I went to the student government um, association president person, and I went to my dorm dad at the time. And I, I spoke with them about the conditions and I was like, this is just unacceptable. You know, you know, we pay all this money, X, Y, Z. And I ended up getting involved in student government and realizing, oh, wow, you know, I'm really this. And so I remember the first time um, I ended up running for what was called the Senator of Lanier East, which was our residence hall. And I had about 200 black men that followed me from dormitory to the student center where there was going to be like a, a Senate meeting um, to express our concerns. And I spoke on behalf of them. I remember the feeling of having these people believing me first off that I could represent and speak for them, but also that there was a, a path forward. And so um, my minor was public affairs. And I just kind of picked a minor because I thought that that was like, you know, I, I knew about government and I didn't want to do poli sci, but um, I was like, oh, this is cool. And so um, I had a path that I would graduate in three and a half years. And uh, so I knew that I wanted to graduate early. I ended up finishing up all of the degree requirements up until my junior year. Uh, and I go and talk to my academic advisor and I say, hey, I think I want to change my major. And he says, no, I will not allow you to do this. And um, I said, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> and he would not. I had to go over his head, talk to the dean. He said I was making the most irresponsible decision of my life. And uh, I went and spoke with the dean. And he said, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll let you double major. And so um, that's how I ended up with a BS and a BA from Texas Southern. Um, it was not intentional at all. It was just because I had ex uh, met the degree requirements. And then I ended up changing my major to public affairs because it was something that I was more passionate about. And I ended up meeting a professor, um, Professor Smith and, uh, and Professor Thomas, two young black women who were urban planning PhD students at the time. And they introduced me to the field of urban planning. And uh, that's kind of how I, I fell in that rabbit hole of city, city planning and public policy and advocating. So when I got to Texas Southern University, I thought that I would you know, be in medical school 
becoming a psychiatrist or something like that, um, or some path associated with social work, uh, similar to my grandmother and working with people and back uh, to the community. Uh, but it ultimately ended up being um, public service in a different way. And so I tell people I majored in people, place, and policy, um, which is city planning is the, the place and the people is psychology um, and the policy is public affairs. So that's quite the story of that is not what I expected uh, in terms of what you got to your chosen profession. Um, but then you went on to get two master's degrees, essentially, right? Dual master's yeah. as well. So um, another mistake. Uh, so I end up, um, my, my thing is, I feel like Black folks don't have to do this well. The one thing we know how to do is hustle. Yes. And so that same advisor, um, Albert Qualls, who RIP, he, he passed, but he was a great advisor, very strong. He told me about a program called the Ronald McNair Program. And it was uh, for first-gen students who um, were in pursuit of a PhD. And he was like, I think you can do this. Um, and so he put me in this research program. It's kind of intensive at the time. And uh, since I was going to be there in a year and a half, I had a summer to do that because now I had this other degree that I need to complete the requirements for. And so I um, get into that program and then they obviously push you to go to graduate school. And I was supposed to go to a conference in Wisconsin. And uh, the conference ends up being canceled due to a snowstorm. And the teacher says, uh, the program director of the McNair program says, well, you can go to any college. We typically don't do this, but you have the opportunity to visit any college you want to. And thing in my grad, grad school, and I was like, so I, look, I literally went to Google and I uh, typed in top uh, city planning programs. And uh, <laughs> one was in Ithaca. And the horrible thing was I'm an alpha. So <laughs> I selected Cornell, but it was also one of the top programs. So I was like, oh, this is great. I can just go to uh, Cornell to visit and uh, I'll apply as well. And so I ended up uh, getting support. You know, they paid for me to, to go on this, this visit um, and I, I went on the visit, met with professors, talked with them, told them I would be applying. Um, and that's how I ended up there. But I, I applied to over 14 schools for graduate mm -hmm. school because at this point, I also wanted to make up for the fact that I didn't know how to apply to colleges uh, earlier. So I kind of made up on the you know, graduate school front and did kind of overdid it in, in a way, but got accepted to a, a, a lot of top programs. Um, pretty much every school I applied to, with the exception of one in Texas that I still don't get, uh, they, <laughs> they denied me. And um, so I ended up going to, to Cornell, and um, that's kind of how I, I landed there. But while there, I figured out, hey, I can't afford to live here because I got a partial scholarship. I can't afford to, to live here um, another for the second year. I need to figure out like either I become a resident assistant, which I was an undergrad as well, um, or I some some has some has to change. And I I applied to this um, house called the Telluride Association, um, and they have a scholarship, uh, residential scholarship. And so I, I get accepted into that scholarship program. And uh, kind of fast forward a lot of details. So if it doesn't kind of make sense, uh, it's because there's a lot in between that's happening. But I, this is my second year at Cornell. I get accepted into this uh, house called the Telluride House at Cornell. 
and they have a residential scholarship. So I ended up not having to worry about um, any type of housing cost. And it's a great experience. And the house is established upon these kind of academic pillars, these three pillars like community service, intellectual inquiry, inquiry and self-governance. And so there was a house meeting and um, it was a great program, but I lived with people from 22 different countries um, and every continent and uh, just had to engage in arguments and debate. And I knew I could defend myself and I could talk. Uh, so I literally, we had these dinner discussions every night and had, uh, so it was free food um, and free housing. So if all I needed to do was argue with people, you got it. And so I did that uh, successfully and I read a book while I was there by Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was the former president of Morehouse College. And uh, it was called Born a Rebel. And uh, in like chapter two of the book or something, like, and this is a person that I like value because he's like one of the best college presidents. Um, and he's like super, everybody knows him and loves him. But um, when he, when I was reading the book, one thing he said he regrets doing is not studying abroad. And, um, and, you know, living abroad or something. And I was just like, oh, that's cool. Like, I would love to do that. And this has literally been a path of my life, not having a man or an example. It's like, I learned from books, literature, TV, anything that I could pick up. I'm like, oh, I want to do that then. And uh, if that Black man did it and he was successful, like, I want to do it too. And so there was a, a scholarship for the house um, to do an exchange um, in, Central Europe, in, in Budapest, Hungary, a place that I had never heard of in Eastern Europe um, for a semester semester exchange, but I ended up applying and I was the only applicant for some reason that year. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a highly competitive scholarship. I like to tell people it was highly competitive, but I was the <laughs> only applicant for that year. And, uh, I ended up receiving the scholarship and then they said, well, since you're graduating, you, um, can actually stay a year and it's actually going to be the last year that we do the program. So, uh, we're, we'll support you staying there an entire year. So I was like, all right. So I looked up the school and I was like, well, if I'm going to be there a year, they have these one year master programs. Why don't I, why don't I just enroll in a, in a program? I could have just like freeloaded, but um, I ended up enrolling in a program and ended up getting a degree while I was there. And it was, that was a whole experience in and of itself. But uh, so that's how I, and the, the way in which I have four degrees is not because I'm some income, well, like overly <laughs> person interested in education. It literally happened, uh, by era, I only am supposed to have two degrees. So, so what was that like being a black man in Hungary? <laughs> um, it was amazing because it, for the first time, people called me an American, mm. and I consistently was called an American, but I was often gawked at, um, and you know, looked at. I would be on the subway, um, and I was, you know, it wasn't like I was just a tourist. You know, I was like there. And so I understood, the, uh, I understood like pieces of language. I could, you know, say hi, bye, get out of my way. Um, and I was like, a, you know, you, you're there past three months. You're you good. <laughs> and uh, with anything, I just knew how to navigate everything. Um, I was in a, the program was very competitive. Um, and so I had to, you know, I felt myself performing in class again, because now I have not only there are a couple of Americans, but I'm competing literally with Turkish um, people from all over continental Africa, people throughout Europe, Germans that had never been in a class with Black people. And the only thing they knew about people was what they had seen in television or in films or anything, or Obama, literally. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm sitting here like, this is 2015. Um, Trump 
is the rise of Trump. So I'm always being queried about American policies and, and things. And uh, my professors who were from places like what, former Yugoslavia or the Czech Republic or um, countries that I hadn't even heard of. Uh, and it was just a, it was an amazing experience because here I am, just a black kid from East Texas, born by a single parent. And I'm in here competing with all of these people who are at the top, they're top students, they're top scholars from their country who have been given the opportunity to come to this institution um, for free. Um, and so it, they, they weren't just run of the mill people. Um, they were really. And so I'm there, you know, I'm just like, I'm just kind of I'm just here to experience life. And then I was like, oh, no, I got to I got to eat. I got to grind in class. And then but on the weekends, I'm like, I can go to Istanbul or I can go to um, Vienna or and I was just like, I can go to Berlin. And I was like, who do you think you are? Like, who are you? Who are you, kid? But I enjoyed it. And I I literally immersed myself in the culture. And I, I like I wanted to stay <laughs> because coming back was Trayvon Martin. Coming back was the rise of a Trump, you know, presidency because, you know, I'm seeing all of these things, but I had to get out of there because at the same time, you have an immigrant crisis that's taking place um, where Sudanese people were seeking uh, refuge um, and trying to come through Budapest, which was the path to Vienna or to Germany. Who and, and, and they were just trying to get there. But then the whole thing, the prime minister there was friends with uh, the president of Russia, uh, Putin. Um, and so it was, it was like this crazy. So I saw what, what has happened in America. I had an up close view of that, of witnessing that in Europe. And they mm -hmm. were frightened because they had seen it before. Um, Hungary is a, a former Soviet outpost. Uh, they were a communist country. They had only been, they were kind of reestablishing their identity, um, since 89. And so when the fall of the Berlin Wall, that impacted Hungary as well. And then I was in, in student in class with people who were from Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, um, that were a part of that Soviet Union. And, you know, they were literally afraid because what was happening is what their parents saw. And then I was coming back to the States and I was like, wow, this cult of personality, this nationalist language, these, um, I would pass uh, rallies and protests where people would be like, you go like it would just be people that would be like you as a black person are you're not safe here because first off they won't touch you maybe if they find out you're american if they think you're african if they think you're an immigrant if they think you're a refugee then they will attack you they will hurt you they will harm you so like get out of the way so there was some moments of fear but i felt okay because um i felt for the first time that my nationality came first before my race until towards the end when you had all of this this nationalism language and things that were being uh, pushed from various countries. But Putin was, he played a major role in uh, the, the country's leadership there. Mm. So, so how, how was that readjustment, though, coming back to the States during such a tumultuous time and not just coming back to the States, but then now having finished your education and getting ready to jump into career as well? So <laughs> you're good. So uh, <laughs> It was literally, um, it was that, that, that's, that's, that was hard because I was applying to jobs and I wasn't getting any callbacks. And uh, I was like, you know, and I wanted to live in DC. And that's where I, I was like, I, I got to live in DC. I want to be around policy. Um, and that's, you know, I want to be around Black people. Um, and, you know, all of this stuff was happening. And I'm like, cool. So I didn't get a callback. I ended up 
my visa, you know, expired. And so they were like, you got to go. Um, so I, I left, got back home and I was supposed to be home maybe for three months for the summer. And uh, I ended up meeting with uh, a local council member who like knew my mom. She was like, I've been following you on Facebook. Your mom posts all these great things. If you, if you need a job, you know, um, you know, I, I, I can help you get a job. And I was like, I'm not working anywhere that you connect, ma'am. No. And uh, ironically, they had a city planning position open for the city. And this never happens because city planning positions, people stay in those roles. And so I get here and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'll apply just to be, I, this lady's nice. I'll do it. But I, you know, at this point I'm like, I got four degrees. I'm not working for the city of Longview and they can't afford me, you know, um, a little cocky, a little cocky. Um, but at the same time, it's just like, I didn't want to be here. And a part of me felt like going home meant that I failed. Mm. And uh, so that was, a, that was a, it was a reality check. Going home meant that I failed. Going home meant that it was all for nothing. Going home meant that it wasn't the sexy thing. It wasn't the high-paying consulting job. It wasn't the the big move. It was like people were like, you just like me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but it was a different, very different experience because when I got there, um, it was, and I, I read this in a book one time, I think from, I forget her name, uh, but uh she wrote of Mules and Men. But anyway, she writes in this book um, and she says, no matter who you think you are, when you leave and come back home, you're not the same person. Mm. People place you upon a, a pedestal. People have expectations of you. So you might think you're the same person, but you can't leave and return as the same person. And people don't see you as the same person. And so um, I realized that I was a man now. and People saw me in some respects as a man as this educated person and they began to place responsibilities on me. Um, and there were some certain expectations in the church that I had to, to play um, because, you know, I was teaching Sunday school because my pastor was like, well, you got to do this. You got to be an example for these young boys. And uh, so I was teaching Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible study. And I was just like, I really don't need to be doing, <laughs> I really don't need to be doing this. Uh, but it helped me because it gave me a purpose, but I was, that was one of the most depressing two years of my life that I spent there. Um, but I don't regret it. And uh, because I was able to spend time with family members that I hadn't been around since I left for college for an extended period of time. And the beautiful thing about that, uh, the unfortunate part as well, is most of them passed on. Um, and so I was able to spend uh, this this period of my life as an adult and to go back to talk to people who had really contributed to my life in meaningful ways. Um, and just have, you know, to spend time with them. And uh, I think I ended up leaving, I ended up quitting that job and just, that's a whole nother story. Um, but I ended up quitting that job and just moving to DC on a whim. And um, everybody that I spent a lot of time with uh, soon passed. Mm. And uh, and so that was really uh, a moment for me. Uh, it took a little key out. And uh, so I was, uh, I was grateful because I didn't, what I, while I didn't realize what God was doing, like he was redirecting me because if I were in DC and working and didn't have those opportunities, I would have felt so badly for not having just those moments, that time. And so um, I, I thank God that, you know, while it wasn't where I wanted to be professionally, personally, where it's where I needed to be, which was around my family um, and, and close friends and getting that love and support. And uh, one of my, I told my, I shared this with a friend and she was just like, aren't you tired? <laughs> and she was just like, 
I'm so glad you didn't get a job in DC. And I was just like, how could you say that? But she was just like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm tired for you. You do everything. And, um, and, and it was like, a, I, it resonated with me so much that I was just like, you are so right. I needed to rest. I had been student body president in undergrad. I had pledged a fraternity. I was a president of my chapter. I was in a research program. I was double majoring. I got to Cornell. I was the president of the Black Graduate Student Association there. I was active with the undergrads uh, there in, in the graduate chapter. Um, and then I was in this residence uh, program uh, and a part of that. You know, so I was doing a lot. I always was over committing myself in ways. And I was, I was tired. I needed a break. And it was, I think God's way of slowing me down um, and, and bringing things back into perspective so I wouldn't lose myself in so much of the work that I was doing. Um, also, just to allow me to figure out who, who are you outside of roles and positions. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.